Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm excited about our study today. Uh, we are approaching Good Friday and also Passover season. So we are going to do a special study looking at the Messiah in the Passover. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're actually sort of going to mix the, the elements of a, a traditional Passover Seder or a Messianic Passover Seder and also the, the teaching of Christ in the Passover. Um, but just let me give you just a small ministry update before we get into this study. We've been quite busy here at Theology and Apologetics. Just a few weeks back I was in Germany doing a, a youth apologetics conference. That was my first time speaking in Germany with the use of a translator and it was a lot of fun, a lot of good ministry taking place and it was just really exciting to see what the Lord is doing in the church in Germany. And then uh, just last week I was up in York at the Calvary Chapel Bible College where I got to address the students and I spoke on Jewish discipleship. That will be forthcoming in a podcast shortly, hopefully. Um, there's been lots of new articles coming out. I've written a review of Justin Briley's book, Unbelievable. Uh, obviously, Justin, if you know him, he, he hosts the Unbelievable podcast. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant apologetic show that we have here in the UK. He recently released his book. Uh, I wrote a review of it for Creation Ministries International. If you go to creation.com, you'll find my review on there. There will be links to it in the newsletter. If you don't subscribe to my newsletter, please go to the website, thomasfretwell.com and just uh, put your email into the to the subscribe box and, and you'll you'll never miss an update. I've also written uh, a two-part series on the theology of Israel, part one and part two. This is for calvarychapel.com, so you can find them there. And there, of course, are a number of other blogs, uh, articles on my own blog at thomasfretwell.com that you can keep up to date on, on where I'm writing. I also have a new book that's recently been published. It's called um, uh, What Does the Bible Say About Adam and Eve? It's a small book for, for day one publisher that is now available on Amazon or direct from day one if you just type my name Thomas Fratwell into that you should be able to find that it's it's only a short booklet it's two pounds fifty I'd maybe ask that you could just buy one of them read it yourself if you enjoy it please leave us a review that would be very helpful and as always if you enjoy the podcast please review the podcast that helps us get up the search rankings and, and share us on your social media I appreciate that a lot right let's get in to our study today so we are looking at Messiah in the Passover now why do we want to do this study obviously as we approach the Easter season it's very good to try and uh, contextualize Easter by making sure we understand that it is really the Passover that we are actually celebrating at this time which is to do with the sacrifice of Messiah so I want to try and put some background onto our understanding of this season that will help us appreciate the Messiah more the context of the Gospels but also will give us a much more meaningful insight into the the ordinances that we have in the church of the last you know of communion and the way that they are linked with the Last Supper. So this should be a fun study. Now, we're going to use some of the Seder liturgy just to give it a real flavour here as we go into it. So to start a Passover Seder, and obviously I'm, I'm doing a Messianic Seder here using liturgy that is put out by Jewish people who do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, as, as obviously that's what we're celebrating this time of year. So to start, um, you have a ceremony called the Kindling of the Candles, now, traditionally, it would be the woman of the house who does this. Obviously, on the podcast, I'll just read the blessing. The woman of the house will come and light the, uh, the Passover candles, and then she will say this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, 
King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your grace and has permitted us to kindle the festival light. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life and has preserved us and has enabled us to reach this season. You see, as the woman begins the Seder and gives light to the Passover table, so it was a woman who began the redemptive career of the Messiah, our Passover, by giving birth to the light of the world. That's the typical liturgy that you'll hear, and obviously I'm sure the, the parallels are clear there between the reason why it is a woman who lights the, um, the Passover candles, and it was a woman, obviously, who brought the light of the world uh, into this world. It is then traditional to, to go through, and through the, the whole evening of a Seder, which can take hours, you recount the story of the Exodus. Passover is all, and Easter obviously is all um, associated with the theme of Exodus. Now the Exodus motif is actually one of the most common themes that you will find throughout the Bible. When we hear terms like slavery and bondage, redemption and freedom, these are both Old Testament and New Testament expressions. These are all Exodus motifs. You see, this is, this is what we find in the New Testament. So that's why it's important that we, we contextualize this and we understand that the roots of our New Testament theology are firmly planted in the soil of the Old Testament. Now, if you remember the story briefly, I'll recap it for you here. Israel came into Egypt while Joseph was ruling. You remember the story, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and he rose up the ranks in Egyptian society, eventually really becoming the right-hand man to the Pharaoh at that time. Much of the book of Genesis deals with this. And as we move into the book of Exodus, you're given that phrase, uh, a new pharaoh arose, one who did not know Joseph. And this pharaoh then started to oppress the Israelites. And they were oppressed and they were made slaves. Later on in the narrative, we see obviously Moses born to, uh, to the Hebrews. And he is called as he grows up, he's called to be the one who will release, uh, take the Israelites out of bondage into freedom and to the promised land. And part of this story is him going to the Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. And this is what leads to the story of the 10 plagues of Egypt. And we're going to pick up this story now in Exodus chapter 12, which is the passage dealing with the Passover lamb. So we will read this from Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read the entire text for you so we have an understanding as we move into this portion of Scripture. It's a fascinating uh, portion of Scripture. Exodus 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbour nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they are to eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs and with its entrails. 
and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. You shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded and your, and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So there is the narrative in Exodus chapter 12 where we get the Passover from, and I'm sure many elements will be familiar to you as in Christian circles as well as Jewish circles as we understand some of these elements. Now that last verse there, verse 14, where it says, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. This is really where, they get, where we get the idea of a Seder. A Seder means an order of service. Uh, this was the command that we continually, that the Jewish people would continually celebrate uh, the, the Feast of Passover, which they have done continually right up to this day. And this is what we will be celebrating today. It coincides actually on the same day with Easter this year. Often there's a bit of a gap between them. So to understand the story, to escape the judgment of death that the Lord was going to bring upon them, they are instructed upon Egypt. They are instructed to slay a lamb and apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts and they will be unharmed. Now, of course, historically, that's, that's actually what they did in Egypt, but it gets very interesting. You see, we understand that all of these feasts, although they commemorate, they commemorate a historical event within the Israelite history, which is the, the, the first Passover here happening in Exodus chapter 12, they also look to a future Christological fulfillment. We find this confirmed for us in the New Testament. The book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, these feasts are said to be a mere shadow of what is to come. So that means they will be pointing forward to a fuller realisation of what they are. And the substance of what these feasts are pointing to belongs to Christ. This is basically saying that you will find uh, all of these feasts on the prophetic, uh, on the calendar of Israel, having some correlation to, to a part of the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating study. We're not going to do all of that now. Obviously, we will look at some of these elements as it relates to the Passover feast. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, you see the New Testament writers developing this Passover motif throughout the scriptures, and they often do it when explaining our salvation in Christ. You see, in uh, Exodus, in the Old Testament, when the, the Israelites are in Egypt, they are described as being in the house of slavery. Exodus 20 verse 2 uses that exact language. It is also said that the Israelites were in bondage. You find that in verses such as Joshua 24 verse 17. And then in the New Testament, someone who is in an unbelieving state, someone who is still uh, unsaved, does not know the Lord, he is still in sin, he is described as being a slave to sin, Romans 6 verse 20, and also being in bondage to sin, Romans 7 verse 14. Now, you, you hope you see these parallels forming. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt and they were in bondage in Egypt. 
the New Testament describes all people who do not know Christ as being slaves to sin and being in bondage to sin. It's a, it's a lovely parallel here. Now, in the Old Testament, God describes the exodus of the Jews via the Passover as being redeemed from the house of slavery. Okay, so the, the exodus from Egypt was classed as being redemption. They were, they were said that they were redeemed from Egypt. And how did this happen? As we, we just read in the narrative, this happened by sacrificing a Passover lamb and applying the blood to the doorposts. And then we turn to the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. We have this amazing text. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, listen, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see, it couldn't really be clearer here that the, uh, the Peter in this epistle, he is using this Passover motif, this redemption language, this, re this, this sort of understanding that the Passover lamb would have been in their thoughts and their minds as they, they uh, understood the salvation that they're given in Christ. The Apostle Paul makes it even clearer. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he actually says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. That couldn't really be more clear. John, Remember John the Baptist in John 1, 29, he sees Jesus and he turns to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So within the, you find this Passover theme all through the New Testament. You, hopefully you'll, you'll notice it more now as I've pointed these things out to you. Whenever you have redemption and bondage and freedom and the lamb and these sorts of things mentioned, it's all referring back to the Passover. It's a huge, huge theme, the Exodus motif throughout the whole of Scripture. But Jesus here is identified with that Passover lamb that was that first lamb slain right back in the times of Egypt from Exodus chapter 12. And this may be why you, you see obviously around even in the, Western and Christian traditions around Easter, it's common to have little lambs all over the place. Really, these are not just lambs to show you that it's springtime when the lambs are in the field. These are Passover lambs, referring back to that passage in Exodus chapter 12. And this is what the apostles use as a prophetic type when they make uh, you understand that Jesus is in fact the Passover lamb. So this is the background, this is the history that we have, have to have in our minds as we move towards Good Friday and obviously Resurrection Sunday and we understand the full scope and the panorama of redemptive history that we see in this beautiful week uh, summed up by, by the Passion Week, culminating in the cross and obviously the resurrection. Now let's jump forward a little bit in, in, the, in the Bible, let's go to the New Testament and I want to look at the Last Supper. This is the, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was led away to the cross. And this was, in fact, a Passover meal. And I want to focus in specifically on a few elements of the Seder, uh, show you their, their deeper meaning, and I'm hoping this will just give us a, a more appreciation for the stories that we find in the Gospels. Now, at a Passover Seder, you'll notice there's typically a, a large uh, Seder plate, Passover plate in the middle, with different sections, and it'll have a number of different items on it. These are for the ceremonial acts that we're about to do. The whole, the whole uh, meal is like a sort of acted-out parable, and it, it's just rich with meaning all throughout it. So one of the first things that you'll find is the dipping of the parsley. Parsley obviously is a green herb and it is dipped during this part of the ceremony, the Seder, it is dipped in a salt water mix and then you eat, you eat it. Now, the green is said in traditional understanding is a symbol of spring, is the, the symbol that youth, spring, is, is new life. And the ceremony symbolizes that when Israel was a young nation in the springtime of its youth, God saved Israel 
by means of the salt waters of the Red Sea, symbolized obviously by the salt water that you dip this green herb in. So that's the imagery that you're, you have when you do this act. And, it, and it, again, it's a great way to help young people particularly and help us just to think about the narrative of the Exodus. The next part of a seder is typically uh, the, the eating of the bitter herbs. Now the bitter herbs, this sort of symbolizes the, the, the herb is, is usually a, a raw horseradish, not the sort of mayonnaise mixed horseradish that we would find in our supermatics, but, but a much stronger raw herb that we have of horseradish. And this is supposed to be very bitter um, to, to symbolize the bitterness of the slavery in Egypt. And, and also our bitterness of being in bondage to sin. And often it's supposed to produce a tear in those who eat it. And this is to be a reminder of those tears that were shed by the Jews whose sons were drowned in the Nile River. Everyone at the table will take a piece of matzah. Matzah is the unleavened bread. They will put a spoonful of this horseradish on it and then they all eat together. I believe it's this part of the ceremony that we, are, we see Jesus acting in in John chapter 13. It says, he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Jesus, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is, I believe, the, the part of the ceremony where Jesus obviously identifies to, to John the Apostle lying next to him at this, this Passover meal, that it was Judas who would be the one to, to betray him. And uh, he dips the sop here, puts the bitter herbs on it. And <laughs> it's no, no mistake that this is the bitter herb in this part of the story. After this, a typical blessing is said, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your grace and commanded us to eat bitter herbs. As the Seder continues, uh, another very symbolic element is the eating of the chasoreth. Now, th this is a sort of uh, a paste that's made, it's, it's usually apples and cinnamon and, and honey all sort of mixed together to give it a brown, brown effect. And it, it's supposed to symbolize the bricks and the mortar that the Israelites had to build the cities of Pharaoh whilst they were in slavery. Um, so what everyone does is they take two small pieces of, of flattened matzah, unleavened bread, and they put the, the chasoreth in the middle and they sort of make a sandwich and then they eat that together. Again, just very good ways of illustrating the story. I mean, it, we all learn from stories and, and parables in very powerful ways. So, so understanding the Seder and what's happening here at the, at the Last Supper just gives a depth and a dimension that we can easily miss if we don't pay attention to the text. Now, on a Seder plate, it was typical to have a, a lamb shank or a bone. I, I know, obviously, in Orthodox circles, they won't eat lamb or anything like that in a, in a Seder meal, but, but in a Messianic, Seder you do quite often see, see the Jewish people eating lamb again but the sim symbolism of the lamb I hope is already clear we, we've talked about uh, the Passover lamb and how the the New Testament writers use this as a typology to speak of Jesus as our Passover lamb and the sacrifice of this lamb was the very thing that led them from bondage to freedom led them out of slavery to sin and that the concept of a Passover lamb was, was not just the New Testament. You, you find the Messiah typified as the lamb even in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, the, the sort of the pinnacle of, of Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, he says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not 
his mouth. And then we would move on to the unleavened bread. Now the unleavened bread is extremely interesting. There's so much typology here. Now if you see a piece of matzah, they come in these sort of thin sheets. Unleavened obviously means that the bread doesn't rise, so they're, they're very thin, they're flat. If you notice here, if, I, if you could see one, if, you, if you're familiar with what this looks like, you'll notice that they are also striped. And you will also notice that they are also pierced. It, it's common to hold up the matzo in front of the candle at this point so that people can see the light shining through it. So this bread is unleavened, it's flat, it's striped, and it's pierced. And then the liturgy reads, even so the Messiah was unleavened, that is, sinless. Even so the Messiah was striped, that is by way of the Roman whip. Even so the Messiah was pierced, that is by the nails in his hands and his feet and by the spear in his side. Concerning the leaven, it is written, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 6 to 8, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Concerning the stripes, it is written, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, John 19 verse 1. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Concerning the piercing, it is written, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see, we, we've just read some scriptures, really from the liturgy here, but I, I hope you can see that the typology is that the, the bread that is used at this Last Supper is matzah bread, and it was hugely symbolic, because we know that throughout the scriptures we've read apart there, there are, there are other scriptures that point to this, and, and particularly in the Jewish tradition, leaven was often a symbol of sin. Okay, so when Jesus says, this is my body, he's not going to say it to a piece of, of bread that was, was un, that had leaven in it, that was risen up and puffed up, because that is illustrative of sin. So instead, he says it of a piece of unleavened bread. The way that it was cooked also to stop it rising meant that it was obviously striped and pierced. So all of these things are pointing towards the Messiah. And this is why I believe it's important that even in the Christian church today, it shows how far maybe that we have drifted from our Jewish roots when we just use a piece of you know normal loaf of bread in our communion services because obviously communion is comes from this passover meal here at the last supper when when that ordinance was instituted and we miss out on the depth of theology if we try and take away or misunderstand the meaning of the matzo of the unleavened bread uh, i don't think it's just a straight swap for for hovis or anything like that that we have here so it's important to understand these things now we don't want to be um, legalistic about it but we also want to make sure that we gain all the theological richness from this, this uh, feast that we have here, that we are con commanded to continue to do in remembrance of Christ. Now, one of the very interesting elements of a, uh, a Sede is what's known as the ceremony of the Afikomen. So during a ceremony, there are three matzahs. There are three, usually three pieces of ceremonial uh, bread put on a plate. And there's what's called a matzah tush. Now, this is a, just a bag, basically. And it 
It's a special bag and it consists of three different compartments. So if you see one, it's like a large rectangle with uh, three different pockets, one in the, you know, the front, the middle and the back. Now, Jewish tradition teaches that these sort of these three wafers symbolize unity, um, but obviously Messianic Jews um, take this a, a step further, and it's beautiful that the way they do this. So, so the ceremony would be that during the meal, uh, the, the middle matzah is taken, uh, broken, and wrapped in a serviette and placed under the table or hidden around the house. And then after the meal, typically, uh, the children or, or the, the father who is officiating will bring back up that broken piece of matzah and he will take the bread, unwrap it and take the bread out. And then he will, the people around the table will, will have that for their dessert. And it, the symbolism of this is just amazing. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, what's amazing about this is if you think that, you know, when we pass around a plate of communion wafers or anything like that, we get that from this passage here, this, this part of the Last Supper where Jesus uh, says, this is my body. Now we can just assume that he's just taking a piece of bread and saying, this is representative of my body, but it's so much more than that. He was doing that, I believe, with this part of matzah that was from the ceremony of the afikomen. So it wasn't just a piece of bread. Firstly, it was a piece of unleavened bread that was striped and pierced. Not only that, it was, a, it was the middle part of a unity of three pieces of wafer, and it was the middle part, so God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Spirit. It was removed from its place of fellowship with those other two wafers. It was then broken, wrapped in a cloth, and placed underneath the table. And then at a point in the meal, it was brought back out, unwrapped, and then distributed. Now this is just, what a beautiful picture of, of the incarnation of the Son of God coming to earth to be broken, to be uh, crucified, then to be buried, and then later on to be resurrected. And then for all of the people, to, the Christians who believe in him, to partake of this divine power. It was that piece of bread that Jesus is holding when he says, this is my body, um, you know, broken for you, give, give thanks, uh, do this in remembrance of me. You know, so that just brings, you see how that just brings so much more theological depth to the, an understanding to just to the everyday ceremony that we take of communion. So let us never become, uh, let that become commonplace. There's so much rich history that we have there. But it goes even further than this. You notice that he goes on to say, in the same way he took also the cup after supper. That little key word after supper is very crucial. And he then says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Now, during a Seder, there are four cups, ceremonial cups, laid out in front of you. One is the cup of blessing, one is the cup of plagues, one is the cup of redemption, and one is the cup of praise. At various points during the Seder, obviously we've skipped many, many parts of the Seder, I'm just giving you very, very brief highlights, you will do something with all of these cups. But the third cup, the cup of redemption, this is the cup that was used after supper. So this, ver this text in Corinthians identifies the, it as a cup of redemption. You see, 
It was this third cup that held a special place as the most important cup because it represented the blood of the Passover lamb that redeemed them from death and slavery. Thus it was called the cup of redemption. Concerning this cup it is written, Luke chapter 22 verse 20, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, what's amazing about this is now Jesus, again, it's not just any piece of bread and it's not just any piece of wine. He uses the third cup, the cup of redemption, to now point and make that a symbol of the greater redemption from sin. Not just remembering the, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, but building upon that to say, like, just in the same way that the lamb points to Jesus, the bread points to Jesus, the cup of redemption now points to that greater redemption. And it's from this cup that he institutes the Lord's Supper. But yet, this is even more amazing. Now, the Mishnah records that this cup, traditionally, was to be mixed with warm water. So you have wine mixed with warm water. Again, this is just because it was supposed to symbolise the blood of the lamb. <laughs> the Passover lamb in traditional Jewish thinking, and obviously in, for Christians and Messianic Jews, we know that this is now symbolising the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And the fact that it's mixed with warm water is fascinating. You see, because what do we read in the Gospel of John? John 19, verse 33 to 35. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. See, this is just amazing, the depth that we have here. You see, so it was with these two items, the Afikoman matzah bread and the third cup of redemption, Jesus now used these things to testify of himself and to institute the new ordinance for the church that we call communion or the Eucharist in some circles. But this is where it comes from. So we have to make no mistake, it is thoroughly Jewish and it is given this fuller meaning now in the new covenant and picturing Christ's ultimate death and redemption from sin. The Seder will then usually end with something, something like this. The service thus performed will be acceptable to God. The order of the Passover is now accomplished as prescribed, according to all its formalities and customs, as we had the privilege to arrange it. Oh, may we also merit the actual observance thereof. O oh, pure dweller on high, raise up your people, of whom it is said, who can number them? O oh, hasten to lead the shoots of your plant and to bring the redeemed to Zion with joyful song in a coming year in Jerusalem. And it's then customary to sing some, some of the psalms and some hymn, hymns at this time. It's a joyful celebration to the, to the last part of this Seder. And I hope just this very brief uh, introduction to a Messiah in the Passover really just whets your appetite to search these things out for yourself. So this has um, been a great study to do with you at this Easter and Passover time. I wish you all a, a happy Easter and a happy Passover. Again, I just remind you, if you haven't subscribed uh, to the newsletter, please go on my website and do that so you can be updated of all new ministry topics. Please go on Amazon and buy my book and obviously leave reviews on that. Uh, that's very good but until then next time thank you for listening for more resources please go to thomasfretwell.com